in Philippians in a moment. There's still a chance to grab a Bible if you'd like to. We're going to be referring to it quite a lot. So there's a stack over there in the corner, stack over there in the corner, and there's a stack on the welcome desk. So do, don't hesitate to, to grab one now. Um, and of course, next week, next week we start our Christmas services. Kevin and I have already been playing Spot the Christmas Jumper. Hands up if you're wearing your Christmas jumper. We've, we've, we've seen you. We've seen you. There's a few out there. So I'm sure we'll be seeing more and more. Um, and we'll be starting our Christmas series uh, next week. And I, I love starting a new series. Um, but endings can be powerful as well, can't they? Endings can be powerful. A couple can have a, a great time for an hour. But if there are a few crosswords at the end then that's what they're left thinking about for the rest of the day, possibly. A football team can play amazingly for 90 minutes, but if they concede a daft goal in the last minute, in extra time, a fan can leave the stadium very grumpy. Or a letter can be downbeat and sad, but some good news in that final paragraph can just lift your spirits, can't it? So how does Paul conclude this letter to the Philippians? Well, I'd like to suggest that he wants to fill them with encouragement and hope. As he reflects on three things, three things I'm going to bring up this morning, how generous they are, how grateful he is, and how gracious God is. And coincidentally, they're all three Gs. How about that? A generous church. So the Philippians had been from the start and continued to be generous towards Paul. And their generosity was, first of all, born out of partnership. Verse 14, it was good of you to share in my troubles, Paul writes. And that word share is the Greek word koinonia, from which we get our word fellowship. And as we've noticed on more than one occasion as we've been working our way through this letter, Paul and the Philippians believed that they were in partnership together, in business together, for the sake of the gospel. This map tells the story of exactly how committed the Philippians were to Paul. Now, we can't be sure um, where Paul wrote Philippians from. Most people uh, suggest Rome, which was about 300 kilometers from Philippi to the west. But some people um, suggest Ephesus, which was 700 kilometers away to the south, and still others, Caesarea Philippi, which was 2,265 miles away to the east in what we now know as the Golan Heights. But the point is this, that wherever he was, This was a serious undertaking on the part of the Philippian church to support him in days when planes, trains, automobiles, and bank transfers did not exist. This was a considerable undertaking of generosity. And it wasn't begrudging in any sense. Paul says that they were the first to help him. Verse 15, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. You only. Many of us have, um, I'm sure, experienced that tumbleweed moment when we've asked for a volunteer 
for something and we're greeted with silence. We're looking for a raised hand or someone to step forwards. Well, Paul nearly had his tumbleweed moment in the early days of his ministry, but the Philippians stepped forward and offered Paul financial support. And it wasn't just a one-off, emotional, knee-jerk reaction to an appeal for funds. So verse 16, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So even when Paul ceased being front page news, they didn't forget. Repeatedly, they supported him. And their support hadn't ceased. Verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. They'd wanted to help Paul recently, but there had been some difficulties to overcome. But, and it just reminded me of that, um, that rescue team in India this week who finally got to those who were trapped in the tunnel last Tuesday, I think it was. They finally got through. And it was a bit like that for the Philippians. They'd been trying to get through to Paul, trying to get through to help him. And we're not told what, what problem, what obstacle they had to work through to get there. But they'd finally broken through. And Paul now says in verse 18, I've received full, full payments and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So Paul was blessed by their wonderful generosity, but it wasn't just Paul that was blessed. Notice too that God was. Their gift went in two directions. And when we give, we don't just bless the receiver. We bless God as well. Verse 18. I'm amply supplied, Paul says, now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. So I'm, I've, I've been blessed by your giving. But then he goes on, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So this giving is not just a one-way thing. It's a two-way gift. We bless the receiver and we bless God. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. So what treasure these Philippians were building up in heaven. What a generous church. And they should be an inspiration to us too. To give financially, our time, resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. Incredible, generous church. An example and a challenge to us. And it's maybe no surprise, therefore, that it prompted gratitude in the Apostle Paul. We have a grateful Apostle. Now, one thing that really interests me in this section of the letter, and you may have picked it up, although I hadn't really noticed it before, I got to study it a bit more carefully, is the tightrope that Paul walks. You see, he wants to show he is grateful, 
but he doesn't want to overplay the importance of money to him. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, he says, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. So he says, I want you to know how pleased I am with this gift that you've sent me. But I'm not saying that because I want more. Verse 14, sorry, verse 12. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. You know, I don't need anything, but I'm so grateful, so grateful. Verse 17, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, so your giving really helped me. But I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty, so you give me more. Can you see Paul is kind of treading this tightrope? He wants to to express how grateful he is to the Philippians, but at the same time he doesn't want to create a guilt uh, so that they feel they have to give more. So it turns out, actually, that Paul is a lot more sensitive than I thought he was. Um, He's grateful, he's really grateful, but he doesn't want that that sense of gratitude, uh, as he expresses it, to create guilt that they should feel indebted to him to give more. And I think there's a lesson for us here in sensitive gratitude. We need to learn how to express our gratitude to others in such a way that they don't feel they owe it to us to repeat that gratitude on another occasion, just because it meant so much to us the first time. Well, how do we learn that? And Bruno will be happy to take that question at the end of the service. So thank you. Thank you, Bruno, for, for being willing to answer that. That's why he is the pastoral ministry lead here, everybody because he's got the answers to these difficult questions. Paul was grateful for their generosity, really grateful. He hopes he's conveyed that, or I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, but he was also content. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So jumping to verse 12 first, that phrase, I have learned the secret, was used in the Greek mystery religions by the people who'd kind of worked their, up, worked their way up through the various levels and layers um, until they'd finally been admitted to the kind of the hierarchy, the top level of the mystery. They'd worked their way up. And so what Paul seems to be suggesting is that he's progressively learned not to let his external circumstances dictate his internal mood, to, to dictate the level of contentment. He's now reached that stage whether rain or shine... Comfort or discomfort, he says, I have enough. I am content. Now, I'm sure he wouldn't say that he was bubbling with joy every moment of every single day. He had his downs. 
the downs of which we're, you know, we can only imagine. But those downs no longer dictated what was going on on the inside. And then that phrase verse ele- in, in verse 11, I have learned, stresses the personal pronoun. So what he's really saying, or the way it should come across is, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. As though he's inviting the Philippians and inviting us to ask ourselves the question, have we learned to be content whatever the circumstances? I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, Paul says. Have you? Have we? Have we learned to be content when it's cold and it's wet? Or warm and sunny? When we're hungry or when we're well fed? When the work keeps piling up or when there's a lull? When the car breaks down, when the water pipes burst, when the house sale falls through, or when all is well, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, says Paul. Have you, have I? So we have a generous church, we have a grateful apostle, And then behind it all, we have a gracious God. And God shows himself to be kind and gracious in all sorts of ways, but drawing out three particularly from this passage, we firstly see that he is a God who gives strength. So having said that he has learned to be content, whatever circumstances, Paul is quick to add, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Earlier this year, the power steering failed on our car, and Helen was driving at the time. She was coming back from the station. The engine suddenly cut out. Um, Happily, she was able to start it and just about managed to get it home again. By the way, as an aside, we only have one car, and that's not the first time that we've uh, been in need, and people from this church have generously loaned us a car. So if you're one of those, thank you very much. We'll try not to repeat the need uh, in the future. But anyway, um, a few days after the incident, I took the car down to our mechanic to have a look at. Now, some of you are old enough to remember uh, what driving a car without power steering is like. Yes, a few nods. Let me tell you, what you are remembering is nothing like what it is to drive a car where the power steering has broken. It was literally, it was like having a workout inside the car, turning some of the corners. I just about managed it. Um, If it had been a kind of, you know, little child in the seat, they wouldn't have been able to turn the steering wheel. It was so stiff. But God makes what is difficult or what is impossible, possible. God provides the power for us to do things that otherwise would be beyond our ability to do. I mean, how could Paul be content in prison? Because God graciously gave him the power, the strength. God so powered his life that he was able to say, I can do all this through him 
who gives me strength. Christ made it possible. As another aside, uh, this verse saved Cromwell's life, apparently. It was in his words, one beam in a dark place of utter despondency and misery following the death of his son. And Paul's words can be a, a real help to us too. So God graciously gives Paul strength and secondly, he provides for his needs. I'm amply supplied and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now those of us with homes and steady incomes and money to pay the bills, most of us I'm imagining in this room uh, this morning, don't witness the power of this promise like Paul did or others do who have nowhere else to turn except God. So Jackie Pullinger is someone that many of us will have heard about and read about. She worked with drug addicts and uh, street sleepers inside the walled city of Hong Kong. And uh, she writes this in her book, Chasing the Dragon. I knew God would provide for me, but as the family in the Lung Kong Road grew, I was amazed to see how our income grew too. Ever since I'd stopped teaching full time, I found that I received all that I needed. I was able to pay for the rent, the youth club room, and my language lessons. Sometimes a cheque would arrive in the post. Sometimes a friend would give exactly the same amount as I'd been praying for. When I wanted to buy a rubber boat for a swimming expedition with the boys, a friend sent just the right sum from England without knowing the need. Now, while we never had enough money to pay for the, for the next week's food or rent, we always had enough for each day. This was exhilarating for the boys who felt they had a real part in God's work when they prayed each morning for their daily bread. Fantastic testimony. Enough for each day. Didn't know where the next check or money was coming from, but God provided enough for each day. And Jesus said, do not worry. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his righteousness and his kingdom. And all these things will be given to you as well. And elsewhere, Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He is a gracious God. He graciously gives us strength. He graciously provides. And finally, he graciously gives grace. So Paul bookends his letter with grace. At the very beginning, chapter 1, second verse, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses later, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And now at the very close, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
And just as Paul books, bookends his letter with grace, so too God bookends our lives with grace. We sometimes sing, don't we, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And in between those two bookends is a life of grace. Whether we acknowledge it or not, the sun shining on the righteous and the unrighteous, what some theologians call common grace, grace given to all of us without, dis without distinction. But most of us here will also recognize the grace that John Newton wrote about in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I know I've told his story, others have, I'm sure, from this uh, platform before, but let me just remind you of it, or perhaps tell it to you for the first time. So he'd been a captain, John Newton, of slave ships and an investor in the slave trade. He served as a sailor in the Royal Navy and was himself, at one point, enslaved for a time in West Africa. <coughs> but on the return voyage to England after his rescue, he awoke to find that the ship that he was sailing in was caught in a severe storm off the coast of County Donegal, and it was about to sink. And so Newton began praying for God's mercy. Well, they made it, and sometime later, he was converted. And Newton came to see, as Paul had come to see 1,700 years earlier, that he deserved nothing. He deserved nothing. In Paul's words, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, Paul goes on. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love, love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was Paul's testimony. That was Newton's, John Newton's testimony. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we ignored him, maybe at best, or hated him, Jesus loved us enough to lay down his life for us. That's why he came. As we approach this Christmas season, let's remind ourselves that is why he came. The angel informed Joseph about Mary. She'll give birth to a son. Familiar words. You are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Christmas is all about. And Paul wants his readers to experience this grace of God towards sinners for themselves. He wants them to know that grace. He wants them to know deep down that they are on the receiving end of God's kindness. Whether they acknowledge it or not, he wants them to see it, maybe for the first time, or to see it again if they've seen it already, that they are targeted by God's kindness. They are targeted by God's grace. Now, it, it would appear that most of the uh, Philippians didn't know that because they had responded generously. That's what we've just seen in the first section um, of this passage. 
Paul knows it. Paul knows that they've been touched by the grace of God. And he is grateful. He's expressed how grateful he is for that. But this is the point. That there is always more to know. There's always more to learn. There's always more for them. There's always more for us. Paul wants us to experience this grace for ourselves. So I close with his prayer. May it be a prayer for us too. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.